TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. You know, the way it works in Silicon Valley is you throw a lot of stuff up against the wall. One or two of them stick. You go up, you paint the bullseye around what's stuck on the wall, and you say, I hit the bullseye. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Guy Kawasaki talks about his career in Silicon Valley and the effect that tough bosses like Steve Jobs had on it. He was an intimidating person, scared the shit out of me, got the best work of my life out of me because I was intimidated. In our world, it's not uncommon to have a job that didn't even exist when we were much younger. Podcast host is one such example. Chief evangelist is another. Among the many hats that Guy Kawasaki has worn in his life, author, entrepreneur, public speaker, teacher, and yes, podcast host, it's his role as chief evangelist that really tells us something about his persona. He's currently chief evangelist for the design website Canva, and he was the chief evangelist for Apple back in the 1980s. Yes, that Apple. His career reveals a lot about how the world has evolved, and he's here to talk all about it. Guy Kawasaki, welcome to Design Matters. Yeah, thank you very much. First of all, a factual correction, okay? Sure. There was Jesus before me. You could make the case that he was the first chief evangelist. Now, there was a 2,000-year gap, right? That that position was open for a while. But seriously, a lot of the principles of evangelism in secular sense were inspired, at least, by the evangelism in Christianity. Now, having said that, I want to make something perfectly clear, as Richard Nixon would say, which is we're talking about evangelism as opposed to evangelicalism, which is a whole different category that's gone off the rails in America. Yes, and if that were the case, we would not be having this conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Well, for some clarification as well, I'd like to ask you, is it true that you're named after the great Italian-American band leader, Guy Lombardo? It is true, but isn't he Canadian? Yes. Let me say that again. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't get to correct right. that. You're going to leave that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to. I'm going to. You know, I was so nervous when you said I have a, you know, you were going to correct the, the intro and it was about Jesus. And, and I didn't think that there was anything wrong with that question. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit nervous now. Um, but in any case, let tell us, me, tell me us just... about why Guy Lombardo. Well, let's just say that When you have me as a guest on your podcast, you have lost all control of your podcast. Just get get rid of that that delusion that you're the host and you're in control, okay? You've lost control. No, I'm not going to smoke any marijuana on this or go all Joe Rogan on you or Elon Musk on you. Thank you. I guess if I were either of them, I wouldn't be on the podcast either. (laughs) Well, definitely not Joe Rogan, but maybe Elon, just to give him a hard time. So tell us about why your parents named you for the great Italian-Canadian band leader, Guy Lombardo. Well, 
My father was a musician. He played the piano, the sax, clarinet, and flute. And he had his own big band. And so, you know, Guy Lombardo and Karen Lombardo probably were his heroes. Now, you could make the case that flip of a coin, I could be named Guy or Carmen. So I think I lucked out because <laughs> I'd much rather be named Guy than Carmen. That's, yeah, I, well, I think either name is actually rather nice. Um, <laughs> Guy, your great-grandparents emigrated to Hawaii from Hiroshima, Japan, yes. in order to pursue a better life for themselves and their children. And you've said that you come from a long line of dreamers. What were your ancestors dreaming of? Well, it's not like I ever met them, but, but they left Japan. Well, there's two versions to this story that I've heard. One is for the economic opportunity of America. Right. And the second was to evade the draft and avoid going to fight in China for Japan. So uh, I come from a long line of poor people who are draft evaders is one way of looking at it. Now, having said that, you know, if you look at some of the theories of immigration reform in America today, that we only want you know, highly professional, highly educated people who can add to the American society because of their expertise or their wealth or whatever. Let's just say if you applied that rule to my great-grandparents, you know, guy would still be in Hiroshima and I'd be working at the Hiroshima Starbucks or something. You know, mm -hmm. it's... You probably don't want to go down the immigration hole, but I have great empathy for people who want to immigrate to the United States because of economic opportunity and to better their lives. Because it's not like my great-grandfather had a PhD in electrical engineering, and so that's why America let him in. We came to pick sugarcane, okay? It was labor. Well, in addition to playing music, your dad was also a fireman and a real estate agent. But he also ran for the Hawaii State Senate three times. He was yes. eventually elected. And after he won, he remained a senator for 20 years. So from picking sugarcane to becoming a senator is definitely a dream come true, I would imagine. I am where I am because of my great-grandparents, grandparents, and father and mother, really. And there's no question. Um, and, well, you could make that case for most people in America, quite frankly. What was it like for you to have a senator for a father? <laughs> well, we got a lot of free football tickets and basketball tickets, I'll tell you that. Um, you know, it was living under a microscope a little bit. I mean, we're talking state senator. We're not talking, you know, Hunter Biden. It's not like people were looking for my laptop in repair shops although the laptop hadn't been invented yet. So it was a, a little bit of a microscope. I, I definitely saw what it's like to be a politician on call and, you know, everybody bringing their problems to you, which cured me of any desire to ever become a politician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, your mother was born in Hawaii, but she went to school in Yokohama, Japan, yes. and returned to Hawaii on one of the last two ships before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Yep. And you said that she, and not your senator father, taught you to not take crap from anyone. <laughs> and I'm wondering how she did that. I'm always curious about how people have that sort of innate ferocity. Well, I don't know. Innate ferocity is an overstatement. I'm not innately ferocious, but she definitely was tough. And, you know, I could make the case anybody who's uprooting and, well, she didn't uproot because she was born in, a, in Hawaii, but, you know, it, it wasn't easy. So she taught me, really, she taught me not to take any crap from anybody. And uh, let's just say that lesson has proven valuable. <laughs> you attended a public school, but because your sixth grade teacher told your parents you had too much potential to remain in the public school system, they enrolled you in a private college prep school. Um, and there you were taught by, by two people that you have said 
changed your life, Harold Keebles and Trudy Aka. Um, how, how did they change your life? Well, uh, Trudy Akau is the sixth grade teacher who told my parents to put me into this school ah, or, okay. or get me into yeah. a private school track. And Harold Keeples was my English teacher. And with hindsight, he was probably the, the most difficult teacher I've ever had in high school, college, elementary, you know, masters, anything. He's the most difficult teacher. And one of the things I learned is looking back, you know, it's the tough teachers and the tough bosses that add the most value to your life, not yeah. the easy ones. No, when you're in the middle of it, you want the easy teacher and the easy boss. And it may take you 20 years to figure this out. But in my case, it took 40 years. But, you know, I figured out, thank God for Harold Keebles and Steve Jobs, the two most difficult people I had to deal with. You said that going to this new school changed the entire course of your life. And if Trudy Akau had not convinced your parents to send you to this new school, you wouldn't have gone on to Stanford, met the person who first got you interested in computers, and then ultimately hired you at Apple. And I was thinking about that as I was reading your memoir and listening to your podcasts and, and really going through your body of work, that it's sort of miraculous to look back and see the circuitous paths our lives have taken. No kidding. What do you imagine you would have done if you had stayed within the public school system? Yeah, so if I had stayed in that public school system, I doubt that I would have ended up at Stanford. I would have ended up at the University of Hawaii, which is a fine institution, but because of Stanford, I met Mike Boich, and you know that put me in the tech sector. So as I look back, Trudy Akau getting me into a different school system was definitely a humongous turning point. Now, if I had not done that, and let's say I had remained in Hawaii, I didn't go to college in the mainland, you know, at that time, your, your horizons in Hawaii for success were probably you managed a retail store or you managed a hotel, or you worked in some management position at the Dole Pineapple or Del Monte Pineapple Company. And that's not to denigrate any of those positions, but that's a very different arc than working in Silicon Valley. I would not be on your podcast now if <laughs> I had gone down that road. Guy, you said when you first got to Stanford, the skies parted and the yeah. angels sang. <laughs> yes. What caused that? What caused that reaction? Well, when I got to Stanford, I kind of truly realized that there is more to managing a retail store or, you know, managing a hotel, that there are other paths to economic welfare and success and you looked around and you saw these tech companies and the size and the impact they had, and frankly, the wealth of their employees. And you realized that you know, this is a whole new ballgame. And that opportunity to start something, the Hewlett Packard story, was sort of life-changing for me. Initially, you were considering a medical career, but apparently you had a fainting episode at the Stanford Medical Center. What, what yep. happened? I couldn't find the details of, of what actually happened. Well, I, um, I took a one-credit class, which involved taking tours of the Stanford Medical Center, going on you know, doctor rounds. And I swear, in the first five minutes, I fainted. <laughs> that's, that's when I figured out, you know, maybe you're not cut out to be a doctor. I, I didn't have to even go through organic chemistry to figure that out. 
Right. <laughs> I understand you also consider dentistry, but have written about no, how you didn't no, want to spend your life. <laughs> oh, no, no. This is, what, this is what you said about it. You said, um, I didn't want to spend my life sticking my hands in people's mouths. Exactly. <laughs> so eliminated, eliminated that as an option. <laughs> but is it true that you decided to major in psychology because it was the easiest major you could find? God's honest. That's the truth. Yes. And, I mean, and I'm proud of it. not that easy. It's not that easy. It's still a science. Well, it's easier than organic chemistry. <laughs> no, yeah, this is true. This is true. <laughs> and, you know, the funny story is that by majoring in psychology, I came into contact with Phil Zimbardo. And Phil Zimbardo, psychology professor at Stanford, is a friend to this day. And in fact, I interviewed his wife this morning for my podcast. So if you want to ascribe more intentionality and intelligence to my career, you could say, so guy, you got a degree in psychology and you went into sales and marketing and evangelism. So you knew what you were doing back in college. And that would be an absolute inaccuracy. <laughs> I picked mm. psychology because it was easy, not because I had this plan to go into sales and marketing. Well, after you graduated from Stanford, you went to law school at your father's urging, but lasted about halfway through orientation week at UC Davis. What happened there? I, I just had a visceral reaction that I couldn't take it. I mean, that it was just... You know, the whole sort of Socratic method and the whole, you know, we're going to destroy you and build you back up on my... At that point, I was too fragile to deal with that. So, I, you know, honestly, I just wimped out. I just couldn't handle it. And I have never regretted that, though. Well, when you quit, you, you felt that you had failed your parents, given how hard they'd worked and sacrificed so much so you could go to law school. How did they respond to the news that you had quit after about a week? <laughs> much to my amazement, my father said something to the effect of, it's okay to quit. Just make something of yourself. You know, don't just wallow in the mire. And he was very accepting. I did not expect that answer at all. Uh, but he was very accepting of my desire to quit. Well, you decided to get an MBA in marketing at UCLA instead. What made you decide that an MBA would be a better pass? Well, uh, you know, we're going back to the 70s and the 80s. At that time, the way the system worked was an MBA was necessary. It was a fence to get over I mean, today, I would say you need an MBA if you want to go into finance or consulting or maybe investment banking. But you don't need to show up at Google or Apple or a tech startup with an MBA. That, that's just not necessary. But back then, an MBA was a way to distinguish yourself from people who just had a BA. And um, I loved business. And so I, I went for an MBA and loved it. During the first year of the program, you met a woman from Hawaii named Lynn Nakamura, who worked for the manufacturer Nova Stylings, yes. um, who sold jewelry to retailers, including Tiffany's and Cartier and Zales. And you began working there counting diamonds yep. and left five years later as vice president of sales and marketing. And you've said that working for Nova was one of the best decisions you've ever made. And I'm wondering why was that so important to you? Because I have come to believe that in tech, and particularly in entrepreneurship in tech, there are only two fundamental roles. You've got to either make it or sell it. And mm. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a programmer. So I could not make it. So I had to sell it. And working in the jewelry business where you're selling to retailers, not to the consumer, but to retailers. Very difficult business. Um, you know, if you, if you think retailing, I suppose the same is true of fashion, but jewelry retailing, you may be dealing with very exotic things like gold and diamonds, but fundamentally, you can get a spot price for gold anytime, and it's, you know, such and such per ounce. And diamonds, all the romance, but it comes down to 
cut clarity and you know carriage and that's a commodity so you know expensive commodities but commodities nonetheless so when you're trying to get anything above scrap value it is selling it is hand to hand combat selling and i think much of life is hand to hand combat selling so you might as well learn how to sell if you can't make Yeah, it's a bit of a street fight. One of the lines that I really loved in your memoir was about how during your six years in the jewelry business, you never once heard the words partnership or strategic. (laughs) On the other hand, you heard the phrase, I can get the same design for 50% cheaper over and over. (laughs) And I'm wondering how that might have impacted the way that you sell or the way that you try to create a sort of mutuality between what you want to give someone and what they want to take. What I was trying to get at there is that basically so much in tech today is BS. This kind of partnership, this all that. I mean, in jewelry, you either sell the guy a diamond or you don't. There's no strategic partnership. You know, we didn't we didn't have a quote strategic partnership with De Beers. You know, you bought it at 400 bucks a carat and you sold it. I'm talking about small diamonds, not big diamonds. <laughs> um, and so it was really sort of simple. And you know what? I, I think it's much more useful to be able to deal with an environment where you're It's very quantitative, right? It's per carat. It's per ounce. As opposed to blowing smoke about this is a strategic partnership. And, you know, I tell people now who want my entrepreneurial advice, if you form a partnership and it doesn't require you changing your spreadsheet forecast, then the partnership is bullshit. Why? The whole purpose of... A business is to create customers to generate revenue. Okay? That's the bottom line. So if you form some partnership and it doesn't either lower your cost or increase your sales, I don't know, maybe it just makes you feel better. Maybe it buys you time. But it's BS. I mean, it's... You know, you you either reduce your costs or you increase your sales. That's what a partnership should do. And unless it does either of those things, it's BS. Since you mentioned De Beers, I was very impressed when De Beers launched the right-hand ring because suddenly it was creating a new need state for everybody to fulfill And while I think it's kind of bullshit to create that need state when you don't need another ring, um, it's really conspicuous consumption, I was impressed at the way in which they executed it because suddenly everybody wanted a right-hand ring for their birthday or anniversary or whatever. And I would imagine that their advertising agency approached De Beers as a strategic partner (laughs) in trying to uh, implement that campaign. But that's just me. Well, first of all, I was in the jewelry business, and this is the first time I've ever heard this concept of a right-hand ring. Oh, really? Maybe I'm totally out of it. Uh, I think you were out of it well before that (laughs) happened. Well, but you know what? Going even further back in history, you could make the case that De Beers invented the desire to want a diamond at all. Absolutely. Much less on your right hand. Correct. And so, you know, like, how did we come to decide that we wanted a little piece of clear-looking glass that's compressed carbon? (laughs) I mean, you know, does it serve any other purpose? I guess you could use it as a very sharp material to cut things or engrave things. But truly, what purpose does a diamond serve? You know what? You could make the case that a diamond is an invented demand. Just like tulips in the 1600s, and now I would make the case just like crypto today. 
There's yep. no fundamental use for those things, except if you believe in the greater fool theory, which is there's somebody dumber than me who's going to pay more for Bitcoin than what I'm paying right now. Let's go back a bunch of decades. When you first saw the Apple II, what was your sense of seeing that? Did you have an immediate sense that who cares or that this was going to be the, the, like, what's the difference between how you're viewing Bitcoin versus the Apple II at that moment in time? Okay. So when I was in college, the state of the art for writing term papers was an IBM Selectric typewriter. And if you were really cool, you had access to an IBM Selectric typewriter with the white liftoff sticky tape. You are too young to know all of this. Oh, no, no, no. I'm five years younger than you guys. With the white sticky tape, you could backspace (laughs) over an error, remove it, and then type the right thing. Okay? That was the state of the art. And you actually paid typists to type your term papers. Or you had a typewriter. And now you see an Apple II. And there is a word processor. And there is a database So instead of having like a Rolodex that you wrote in, you had a database that organized your contacts. And then there was this whole new category of a spreadsheet, which means that you could just change your financial assumptions and it would ripple through the spreadsheet and show you what has changed. So that is going from running very fast to flying. It's a different experience. So the utility for an Apple II, word processing, spreadsheet, database, graphics, all that, you know, it's not too hard to comprehend the use and utility for those functions. By contrast, I mean, honestly, let's just just like lay it out there. The reason why people bought Bitcoin is because they thought it would get more valuable. Not because it did anything for them, right? So that was pure speculation, which is okay. God bless you. You can speculate on diamonds, tulips, Bitcoin, gold, platinum, copper, whatever you want. Stock but market. Don't tell me it's because of some fundamental economic use for it. Your love affair with the computer, because I I, it, I think it's fair to say that you saw the Apple II and fell in love. Yes. And, and your love affair with the computer inspired you to try to get a job in the industry, in the tech industry. And shortly thereafter, your standard, uh, one of your Stanford classmates that you mentioned earlier, Mike, uh, told you there was a position available in the Macintosh division at Apple. Um, what kind of job was it? And, and what happened when you tried to Go get it. The first time Mike contacted me, it was to work in the Apple University Consortium. And the Apple University Consortium was based on the theory that we should get Macintoshes into colleges so that college students would be, frankly, addicted to using a Macintosh. So when they graduated and they went to work in the real world, they would take their Macintoshes with them or demand that the companies buy Macintoshes. So it was, you know, a form of seeding the market. I didn't get that job, nor do I believe I was well suited to that job. So about six months later, he said, okay, now we have another job. And this job is called software evangelist. So the the position involves going to software companies and selling them the Macintosh dream that they could create software they're always dreamed about to reach new markets. And now this doesn't sound like it's like jewelry either, but it's a lot closer than the other position. And so you had to buy into the fact that Macintosh was good news, which is kind of the definition of evangelism, bringing the good news. And so I loved it because just like when I saw the Apple II and the scales were removed from my eyes, when I first saw Macintosh, so now you have to understand. So we went from typewriter with white tape removing errors to spreadsheet database word processor. And now we go to Macintosh, which is graphical user interface, mouse-based, not cursor-based. And you could draw and you could 
have patterns of fills. So you could use Mac Paint and Mac Draw and PageMaker. And well, that came later, but all this kind of stuff you could never do with an Apple II. That was as big a leap as going from typewriter to Apple II. Apple II to Macintosh was that kind of leap. You can tell that it was a religious experience for me then, too. Well, apparently, Steve Jobs was not all that excited about hiring you. In fact, I believe he told Mike <laughs> that he could, Mike could well, hire you, but he would be betting his job on your success. Well, <laughs> what made him say that? What was, why, why did he have that impression of you? Well, not even Steve Jobs is perfect, right? But, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this, this comes to the theory of proxies in Silicon Valley. So, you know, one proxy in how it works in Silicon Valley is that you are a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon in computer science. You're a PhD candidate in computer science at Stanford or you are an Apple II programming whiz. So you take that kind of data and you, 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 know, you extrapolate and you say, okay, you'll be great working on a new computer, new operating system, which is perfectly rational. Uh, another proxy is you worked for Hewlett-Packard, working with Hewlett-Packard software developers. You know, so you had to have this logic of working in the business or having the right educational background, of which I had neither, because I majored in psychology and I came from the jewelry business. Besides that, I was the perfect candidate for this job. So honestly, I owe it completely to nepotism that Mike mm. Boyce hired me. There is no other explanation. Now, this yields several important lessons. Lesson number one is be nice to people in college because you just never know who's going to get you into the Macintosh division. <laughs> and it's probably not the um, all-American quarterback you're hanging around. Okay, So that's one. And, and number two is it really didn't matter how I got into the Macintosh division. You could get into the Macintosh division because you're a computer science PhD candidate or because you worked in another computer company or you're Mike Boyce's friend. All three obviously could work. But the day after you start, nobody cares if you have a PhD Nobody cares if you work for Hewlett-Packard. Nobody cares if you're Mike Boyce's college roommate. All they care about is, can you do the job? And that is a very important lesson both ways. That is, without the, quote, right background, can you do the job? The flip side is also true. What if you had the perfect background, PhD, computer science, worked in Hewlett-Packard, but you didn't understand and love and get Macintosh? You still couldn't do the job. So this means that, you know what? I think basically you need to ignore people's backgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think people do say don't hire for skill, hire for attitude, which I think makes a lot of sense, especially at the beginning of someone's career. That makes a lot of sense, but not if you're Kaiser Medical Foundation. You right. know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you're, if you're hiring an oncologist, <laughs> let's yeah. just say that you should hire for skill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You said two things about working at Apple that I wanted to sort of juxtapose. You said that working at Apple was like going to Disneyland every day and getting paid for it. But you also described it as a place that had the largest collection of egomaniacs in history. <laughs> and so talk about what that was like. There's so few people that really go on the record to say very much about it. You know, those two statements are not necessarily in conflict. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Now, the, the going to Disneyland part was that it was so exciting. It was like going on the, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but the last time I was at Disneyland was about four years ago. But it's like going on the cars ride, right? And so, you know, you, you weren't going to work for a, mainframe computer company supporting a bank with 
software that has 2 million lines of Fortran, right? So this was like your mother and father and sister and brother and boyfriend and girlfriend. They could use Macintosh to make Mac paint. They could create beautiful documents. They could do things they could never do before. It's not for an accounts payable clerk working at B of A. So th that's the Disneyland aspect. Now, as far as egomaniacs, Steve Jobs, who is right up there, and I say that positively, he did not suffer fools. And there was a theory at the Macintosh division that A players hire A players, or I have come to believe A players hire A plus players. So there was a sort of real prejudice against hiring people who were B players or bozos or anything. So it was a very high bar. I don't know how I passed it in some sense, but <laughs> thank you, Mike Boych. But somehow I got past that. And clearly I was competent. So, you know, I passed it once and remained in good graces. But to use a sports analogy, and I'm going to date myself again and make my analogies irrelevant to many people, but if you look at someone like Bobby Knight, basketball coach, Indiana, or Vince Lombardi, football coach. I, I was actually, I, that's where I thought you were going, yeah. So when you look at them and what they did, and from the outside looking in, you say, well, these are like mean people. That, you know, that it's not a lot of positive psychology. Oh, let's get together and discuss your life goals, and I'm focusing on the positive, and, you know, how can we improve our relationship? These people were throwing chairs at people, right? And yet, I think if you talk to many of the Green Bay Packers or the Indiana players, they loved being coached by Bobby Knight or Vince Lombardi. And I would say the same thing is true of Steve Jobs. That don't get me wrong, he was an intimidating person, scared the shit out of me, got the best work of my life out of me because I was intimidated. I make no bones about it. He was an intimidating person. But that drove me to do some of the best work of my life. Now, I can't tell you that his style is for everybody. I can't tell you that Elon Musk's style is for everybody. But there are some people <laughs> where they rise to the occasion or they, you know, they, they like that kind of challenge or that kind of environment. And again, it's not for everybody. But for some people, it is life-changing. You said that Steve Jobs drove most of the people at Apple to do their finest work. You just said that you did the finest work of your career. Well, don't tell people at Canva that. But <laughs> well, one, Some of the most. Let's say some of the most. Or certainly a foundation <laughs> of, of great work. But I can't imagine that that motivation strictly came from intimidation. There had to be something more. Like with, with Vince Lombardi, one of the great stories that I love about Vince Lombardi was that he would always say he never lost a game. And people would be like, Coach Lombardi, there were a few. And he's like, no, no, I never lost a game. I just ran out of time. Time ran out. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and I love that sort of philosophy as, you know, if I just had a little bit more time, I would have recovered and, and grabbed the ball and run with it. So there had to be something beyond intimidation that inspired you to do that best work. Yes. So part of it is that you want someone who has ability to inspire you. And in Steve's case, the inspiration was, we're going to create a computer that is going to change the world. We're going to send IBM back to the typewriter business, and we're going to make people more creative and productive, and that's without a computer science degree. So this is the computer for the rest of us. And, you know, how can you not buy into something like that, right? Yeah. I guess you, you need to draw a Venn diagram of there's like intimidation or inspiration, if you will. And then there is this cause of how it's going to change the world. And then the third thing is it's real. So you want the intersection of something that's inspiring, world-changing, and real. And that was Macintosh. Yeah, David Foster Wallace talked about what a real leader does. And I'm going to paraphrase here. He says something like, you get people to overcome their laziness and their fear <laughs> and do something better than they could ever do on their own. 
And I think that's there's something really interesting there. Well, I mean, let me push back on that. All right. So first, that implies that people are scared and lazy. I don't agree with that. I, I would say a much more positive way of saying what he said was that you enable people to do the best work of their lives. Yeah. Which is different than saying you wimp and you <laughs> yeah. idiot and you lazy bum. I'm going to lead you out of your mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually think that's a much more optimistic way of, of looking at it. <laughs> You left Apple in 1987, but came back in 95. Why did you come back? And what were you doing that second time around? Well, I came back because in the 1995 timeframe, that was when Apple was supposed to die again. And, you know, this is the whole fire John Scully, fire Steve Jobs, fire everybody, bring in these new CEOs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I came back because... I loved Apple, and as an Apple fellow and chief evangelist, my job was to maintain the Macintosh cult and developer community. So it was my job to ensure that they stuck with it and were appreciated and supported. And, you know, arguably, that was one of the big factors that enabled Apple to succeed. So that was my job. That's what I did. So you're currently an evangelist for Canva, which I want to talk about in a bit, but that word is a common denominator in both of these jobs, the, yes. the evangelist. What, what does an evangelist do? How do you become one? <laughs> what is an well, evangelist actually? So an evangelist, first of all, evangelism, the word, comes from Greeks, and it means bringing the good news. So the good news of Macintosh was that it made people more creative and productive. The good news of Canva is that it makes you into a better communicator because it has democratized design. And so what an evangelist does is basically spread the good news. Now, this is different from sales, or you could make the case that it's the purest form of sales, because a salesperson typically has his or her best interests at heart my quota, my bonus, my income. An evangelist has the other person's best interest at heart, I won't say solely, but equally. So when I tell you that you should use Canva to make your graphics, don't get me wrong, it's good for me, but I also truly believe that it will make you a better communicator. It'll make you a better designer, a better speaker with your presentations. And so it's not just good for me, it's good for you too. And I think that's the core of evangelism. It's good news that's good for both of us. You stayed at Apple several more years and left again for the second time. A few years after that, you saw Steve Jobs at a tech conference and he asked you to return to run Apple University, the internal training curriculum for Apple employees, and you turned it down too. So you're someone that quit Apple twice, turned down a job offer to return for a third stint, but have said that in many ways you are who you are and where you are because of the work you did at (laughs) Apple. Any regrets at not going back that third time? You said that it cost you tens of millions of dollars. I'm glad you brought this up at the end of the podcast because one would make the case if you brought that up early, people might listen to this and say, why would I listen to someone who's such a dumbass who quit Apple twice and turned Steve down the third time? If he was not such a dumbass, he would have stayed any of those three times and he would be worth... I don't know about hundreds of millions, but at least tens of millions, to which I respond, that's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> way of looking at what I did. <laughs> but, but, you know, if I had stayed at Apple from then till now, I don't know if I would be Tim Cook. I kind of doubt it. But I might be CMO or something. And, and yet, you know... Um, Look at the experiences I've had. So I tried to start companies. I funded companies. I supported companies. 
I, you know, I could make the case that if I had been at Apple from 1983 when I first started till today, my life would not be nearly as rich. Mm. And I don't mean money. I mean experientially. And for, for all that time, I would have had to tow the company storyline, right? And frankly, I, I can't imagine having the kind of freedom that I have now. They would probably have a PR person sitting in on this interview and saying, you know, guy, you can't say that about Steve or you, you, know, you can't say that about Apple II or whatever. I mean, if I had stayed at Apple, I would be richer financially, but I would be poorer in terms of who I am and what I am today. Frankly, I, I might just be a self-righteous asshole if I had stayed. You but also turned down. <laughs> well, you also turned down the CEO job for of Yahoo. You, you know, well, you were you were offered that job when it was no, nothing no, more than a collection a little, of. <laughs> I'm, let's get that accurate. I okay. turned down the opportunity to interview for that job. It's not clear I would have gotten that job, but honestly, when the lead investor of a company asks you to interview for the job. Unless you really, really blow it, you're going to get the job. It's, you know. So, yeah, I could have been the first sort of external CEO of Yahoo, which I figure cost me $2 billion. Two, $2 billion here, $2 billion there. It adds up to real money after a while. So, so yeah, so I... Turn, I quit Apple twice. I turned Steve Jobs down. I turned down Mike Moritz of Sequoia interviewing at Yahoo. But thank God I became the chief evangelist of Canva because that's well, going to erase also, all those errors, I yeah, hope. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. This is true. I want to get to that in a minute. But you've been part of several really successful startups. You've invested in many successful companies. They include Garage.com, where you created and introduced Alltop.com, Holy Caw, Evernote, Enthrill Paper, Six Sense, Ticket Leap, Ustream, Visible Measure, among others. Um, do you have a spidey sense about what to invest in, or do you strictly look at numbers? Oh, <laughs> I have a spidey sense. I really don't look at numbers because when entrepreneurs give you forecasts, they're all the same. They all say they're going to do $75 million in year three. It doesn't matter if you're selling hardware, software, websites, social media. You know, the way you make that spreadsheet is you come up with a number that doesn't mean or doesn't indicate that you're hallucinating so it's not too high, but it's not so low that people will say it's not worth the trouble. So that number is 75 million in year three or four. Now, before we get too far down the road, let me tell you something. So I have never created a humongous success along the lines of Apple, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. In all my entrepreneurship efforts and all my investing, I cannot claim to be successful like that. I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not Elon Musk, okay? And I'm also not Mike Moritz or John Doerr in the venture capital sense. I've hit singles. Maybe every once in a while I hit a double. Now, Canva is a home run, but I can't tell you that I believe I'm like this total rock star entrepreneur investor. It is not factually true. Having said that, I don't exactly start off a conversation by saying, you know, I'm a failure, but <laughs> now I'm at Canva. That's not how I position myself. <laughs> the, the way I position myself is, listen, I work for Apple. I've worked for Google. I've worked for Mercedes-Benz, and I've worked for now Canva. And I have a very successful podcast with remarkable people like Jane Goodall, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Steve Wozniak, Ariana Huffington, Margaret Atwood, Christy Yamaguchi. And when you position yourself that way, you pretty much convince people you're successful. <laughs> I don't, you know, the way it works in Silicon Valley is you throw a lot of stuff up against the wall. One or two of them stick, you go up, 
you paint the bullseye around what's stuck on the wall and you say, I hit the bullseye. You don't talk about all the stuff that hit the wall and fell off. The founders of Canva are trying to democratize design. And you mentioned that democratization of design. How involved are you with their efforts to do that? Originally, I was very involved. So, you know, I I was convincing at the very highest and lowest levels of why you would use Canva instead of Photoshop and why it democratized design. But that was eight years ago. Honestly, now, I couldn't hurt Canva if I tried. Canva is a tsunami. The credit goes to the three founders. It goes to Cliff and Melanie and Cameron, not Guy. This is what's called Guy's Golden Touch. And Guy's Golden Touch is not what I touch turns to gold. Guy's Golden Touch is whatever is gold Guy touches. (laughs) Adobe bought Figma for $2 billion. Do you think that they're going to make a bid for Canva? No, it was more than two billion. It was twenty billion, wasn't 20 it? Billion? Oh, I've, I made point. Twenty billion. I made a mistake with the decimal point. Twenty billion. Twenty billion. Eighteen billion here. Eighteen billion there. Exactly. It adds yeah, up. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All those two billion chunks that we were talking about before. Um, you think that you think that they're going to uh, try to make a pitch for for Camp? I have no idea. I'm not involved in those kind of conversations. I don't want to be involved in those kind of conversations. I think Canva is on a trajectory to just truly democratize all forms of design from not just sort of photography and graphics, but websites and documents and presentations. Hard to imagine that, you know, the the fate is to become part of Adobe. I think it's to be a standalone, humongous success. That's the dream. The last thing I want to talk to you about is your podcast. Yes. What motivated you to start a podcast? Well, there's two stories. Everything you ask me has complications. If you want the usual PR, you know, I wanted to empower the people with my PR flack sitting next to me saying, God, yeah, you said it right. So there are two stories. Tell me the story. Number one one. is (laughs) I had just finished my book. Wise Guy, which you refer to as a memoir. It is not a memoir. Um, It is not a memoir because I don't believe my life merits a memoir. I'm not Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall has a memoir. Guy Kawasaki has a bunch of stories that affected his life. Anyway, that's an aside. So I was on the book tour for Wise Guy, and a bunch of podcasters had me on their podcast. And as an author doing your book tour, you basically say yes to any podcaster because you can reach thousands of people on a podcast and you can't get thousands of people into your local Barnes and Noble. Okay. So I got in these conversations with this podcaster. And I said, so like, how do you make money? I said, well, I sell an ad pre-roll, mid-roll and post-roll. I said, well, how much do you sell those for? Uh, get 25000 for the first one, 15000 for the second one, 10000 for the third one. So I can do the math. You know, that's like 40, 50 grand per episode. How many episodes do, do you hear? I don't know, 50, 52. So I said, 52 times 50, that's two and a half million bucks. Are you telling me that's what you make? So yeah, more or less. And I said to myself, well, why am I writing books? Why? <laughs> what? Like, I'm an idiot. Why am I writing books? I can just do podcasts. So that was motivation number one. I think it's a better medium, easier, more sponsors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That was number one. Number two is I dislike travel. And to be an author and a speaker, I was traveling 75 times a year. I do not want to travel anymore. So that's motivation number two. And motivation number three, which maybe is the one I should have started off with, is that I look at my life and if you were to draw a Venn diagram, There's one circle that says, you know, who has the ability to get to Jane Goodall and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Steve Wozniak? Not necessarily BFFs, but at least can get them credibly to accept an invitation. So there's one circle. Second circle is, well, who has the background to know what to ask Jane Goodall and Steve Wozniak because of years of experience, not just because... 
I was a summer intern at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey last year, and I'm 21 years old, and I think that you know I'm on the trajectory to be the next Elon Musk. So I've had 40 years of getting the shit kicked out of me. So there's that circle. And then the third circle is, well, who has the ability to get Jane Goodall and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Steve Wozniak and Christy Yamaguchi and Margaret Atwood to answer the question that you should ask? So if you draw those three circles... I'm one of the few people in the middle of those three circles. So I felt that I had this ability and access and good fortune to get this kind of conversations going that I could bring to other people. Because, you know, the probability of someone listening to my podcast being able to send an email to Jane Goodall and say, Jane, would you like to hang out for an hour? And she accepting is zero. Thank you, God, I have that ability. And Jane has blessed me with her presence on my podcast several times now. So I think I almost have a moral obligation to help get the Jane Goodall story out. I understand that. That's a long answer to a short question. That's a great answer. It's a great answer. I understand (laughs) that the, the name of the show went through several iterations before you settled on Remarkable People. And I think you considered the name Wise Guy, which because the podcast was coming out around the same time as your book. Yes. Um, I, I also read that you considered calling the show Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. D-U-H. Duh. <laughs> um, why? First, let me tell you why I rejected Wise Guy. I rejected Wise Guy because the implication of Wise Guy is that it's all about Guy and his wisdom. Right, It's like the gospel according to Jack Welch or the gospel according to Peter Drucker. And my podcast is not the gospel according to Guy. This is the gospel according to Jane and Neil and Steve and Christy and Margaret, not Guy. So that's why Wise Guy was rejected. I considered naming it Duh because I thought that what I was trying to do is bring out all the wisdom and, and expertise and knowledge of people that's Duh-isms, right? So Jane Goodall got her opportunity in Africa not because she had a PhD in biology from Oxford. She got her opportunity in Africa because she happened to have secretarial skills and the leaky organization lost a secretary and needed a secretary. So the lesson there is don't be proud. Just get your foot in the door. Duh. <laughs> and so my podcast is full of duhisms. And I'm writing a book based on all these interviews about how to be remarkable, which, you know, at, at one level, if you're some highfalutin New York Times, you know, book critic, you would say, well, it's just a collection of insipid, obvious duhisms. Well, on the other hand, it's insipid duhisms from people who are truly remarkable. So, if you want to call it a duhism and insipid and shallow and worn out, God bless you. But I'm telling you, when Jane Goodall gives you advice, you should listen. What has the experience of being the interviewer been like for you thus far? Because usually you were the one being interviewed. I like it much more because as the interviewee, you know, I always have to, in a sense, recreate what we did today. What was it like to work for Steve Jobs? Mm. So with the interviewer, if nothing else, my podcast is going to stave off my inevitable intellectual decline because 52 times a year... I have to really understand a new area. Today, I interviewed Christine Maslech. She is an expert in burnout in career. So I had to understand consequences and causes of career burnout. Yesterday, I interviewed Julia Cameron. Julia Cameron talked about creativity and writing. So yesterday, I had to understand writing. Today, I have to understand burnout. Last week, I had to understand how the Terranos case worked because I interviewed the person who blew the whistle, Tyler Schultz. 
Previous to that, I interviewed a woman who has run in a marathon in all 50 states. So I had to understand what makes her remarkable is that she has Lou Gehrig's disease. So now I had to understand Lou Gehrig's disease, writing, Terranos whistleblowing, and career burnout. Every day is like that. And so if you believe the theory that you can prevent or delay dementia and intellectual decline by constantly learning, I'm going to be sharp for a long time. (laughs) Guy, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Design does matter. If, If there's anybody who believes that design matters, the chief evangelist of Canva is one of them. You can see lots more about Guy Kawasaki, listen to his terrific podcast, and read more about the 15 books he's written at GuyKawasaki.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman. 